appreciate you guys being here. You never know with Bill Ivey introducing you what, what might could happen. So, uh, so far it's okay. And it's kind of a premarital counselees reunion in here. You, you don't know each other, but there's several, several of you in here. So that, that's okay. Um, so you guys have done some creative stuff, sounds like, and had some good things going. Jermaine and I worked together, by the way, is one reason he's back, and Luke Guard, and uh, Jen Farmer, and Sherry James. I'll leave anybody out. So diff- different varieties of full and part-time in all of that. What, what's your title at Agape as well? Uh, performance and Quality Improvement Director. Okay. That's what he does. I won't try to repeat that at Agape, but that's you know, does some good stuff. That's his full-time job, but he is uh, kind of starting his private practice with us, which we're, we're happy to have him there. Um, protecting marriage. We turn into 2 Samuel 11, if there's any Bibles out there, just kind of kick us off. Um, I've done, I heard the origins of this lesson probably in the mid 80s in Miami when Kim and I were living there and just newlyweds and Lynn and Joy McMillan came down. Anybody know the McMillans from Oklahoma Christian? You know, how many, how many sermons and lessons can you say? I'm remembering however long ago that is. My math's not so good. 30 years, I guess. And just made a big impact on me, that whole, that whole seminar that he did. So I stole some of that, added some stuff to it. And you know, if somebody just says, come and speak on what you want to speak on regarding marriage, it's usually going to be some, some variation on this. Because I really, really hate adultery. Are any, any of you with me on that? Um, marital therapist probably... You know, I probably uncover or find out. I don't uncover it myself, but I hear about a new. I'm not in that part of it. That's another. That's another profession. Um, you know, hear about a new one pretty much every week, which you know gets gets old. You know, we'd like to just avoid all of those if it possible. And you know, if you didn't figure out what this was about from the title, some of you may be thinking, "Oh man, we weren't, weren't trying to weren't trying to come here about that." But I'm glad that you are, and I hope that you'll. Pay attention to this, and I'll tell you the really, really important part. If you tend to zone in and out, Trent will get will get you back in. You know, on on that part. Okay, you're welcome. Um, so just think it's very, very crucial. And usually, those of us that think this is the last thing we need to hear about, it may be the exactly the thing we need to hear about. One of my favorite stories a few years ago, uh, probably doing a variation on this or something on this topic, and. Um, one of my clients was involved in something pertaining to this, and I'd given a, a lesson at church, and one of the elders' wives, who I, who I really love dearly, I've never told her that I got wind of this gossip coming back. You know, that's kind of how it usually goes. She said, why did Keith talk about that? You know, everything he could possibly talk about, he talks about adultery, and this person was involved in an affair at the time, and they, they kind of knew why. I needed to talk about that. Do you see see the irony of that, I guess? So that's that's the reason I picked this. And I think Bill's going to, if he follows up on that, I'm glad because everybody needs a reminder. 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, wasn't football season or baseball season necessarily, but war season, you know, they, they waited for the right right weather to come about. So where was David supposed to be, by the way? With his troops off to war, that's not exactly where he is, is it? David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. 
But David remained in Jerusalem. Pretty good lesson first is be where you're supposed to be, right? <laughs> if you're in some place you don't need to be, get out of there is pretty good, pretty good advice. Um, I've heard lots of Christians say, you know, just woke up and suddenly realized I was in, you know, you, you fill in the blank, topless club, somebody's house they weren't supposed to be in, especially at that, that time of day or just anywhere. Just leave, just get out. It's really not that hard. Uh, Joseph had the right idea, right, when Mrs. Potiphar kind of put the moves on him and it still uh, still bit him, but he, he came out okay. That was God's will. I could really preach through all this. I'll, I'll restrain myself. Uh, verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. You know, as a young teenager, I never could figure that out. It's like, why are they taking baths on the roof? That didn't make sense to me. Or was it a window that, you know, you looked in? This is what goes on in adolescent boys' minds, so stay clear of them. Uh, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who was one of his friends, by the way, one of David's 40 mighty men, right? So knowing the end of the story, as we all do, what should David have done at that moment? Got off the roof, yeah. Just realized, A, she's married. B, she's married to one of my friends. C, I'm married. <laughs> Not supposed to be doing all this. I know it's a polygamous uh, culture. I don't think in a godly way at that point. That wasn't God's will for them. But that's not what he does. Then David sent messengers to get her, get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She'd purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And you know, you know the rest of the story. We, we, could, we could run through that and that would be time well spent. But I need to give Jermaine a few minutes. I don't need to get you to, to kind of some main things I want you to hear about. But just, just kind of as a biblical basis. And by the way, was David the person we would suspect having an affair? What's the Bible call him, by the way? Man after God's own heart. That didn't, that didn't change because of this, but it was certainly a bruise, wasn't it? It was certainly a period of time I'm sure he wished had never happened. So God can still salvage some things and recycle some things, but that's not what, what he wants us to do. And granted, I don't think any of you are prowling about on your roof looking for beautiful women taking a bath, right? Is that, that's probably not the, the thing you're going to fall into, but we've got our own modern parallels to that. There's a lot of myths about adultery. Uh, let me throw a few of them at you. Affairs are normal. You hear that one? One of the books... I was reading some this week, the, the monogamy myth, um, drawing a blank on her name right now, Vaughn. Um, I, I told people that it didn't really mean what it sounds like it means, but the more I read of it, it's like it does kind of mean what, she, what it sounds like it means. I don't agree with her. Her bottom line premise is that, you know, human beings maybe are not monogamous by nature and they're going to they're gonna stray. That's a myth. That's false. But what is true is that it's very, very rampant. And if any of us think we're above all that and can be tempted by that, not be tempted by that, we're fooling ourselves. So please, please don't think that. But 
It's not God's will, but it, but it is something God can repair. Is that, is that fair enough? Every folks that I've talked to that have gotten through that would still like to say, Let's, we'd, we'd rather have avoided that whole chapter of our marriages, even though they can get through them. Um, I've got to hurry up. Another myth. Affairs are not your fault because your mate fails to make you make your life a constant state of ecstatic wonder. <laughs> there were some eye rolls as I said that. Yes. Do you hear something similar, though, in our in our culture? Are your marriages supposed to be a state of ecstatic wonder? If you watch enough Lifetime TV or if you're, uh, you know, kind of hearing that that line that goes through society. That's, that's definitely a myth because, A, affairs are your, your fault. There can be mutual fault. We won't get into all of that probably tonight, but you still want to try to avoid them as much as you can. Uh, another myth, if your marriage does not make you happy, you will surely be miserable unless you make a getaway with somebody else so you won't be lonely. Uh, marriage is magical. If this is the right marriage, it won't take any work. Some eye rolls, please. Okay, yes. So some, some of those. It's about the hardest work you'll ever do long term. Um, it probably wasn't in your, your wedding vow ceremony, right? But it probably should have been. You're getting ready for some very hard work. Um, Shirley Glass has got a couple of them as well, who I do like her book, Not Just Friends. If you need to just read one thing on not just preventing this, but kind of working through that. Her book would be the one, in my opinion. Um, so these are not exactly all myths, but just stuff that gets thrown around. You can have a, an affair without having sex. That's true. Sometimes the greatest betrayals happen without touching. Infidelity is any emotional or sexual intimacy that violates trust. Okay? I know all those arguments. We're just flirting on... Face uh, Instagram or whatever, right? But that's, that is exactly the same thing. Because child-centered families create conditions that increase the vulnerability of affairs, the children may ultimately be harmed. They absolutely will. And don't, don't hear me being pessimistic for kids kind of working through this. We, we still have to help them do that. I know there's, sometimes that can't be avoided, but, you know, we're fooling ourselves if we think there's absolutely no impact on children from either um, adultery or divorce and remarriage, whatever combination of all that. Um, this is true. People are more likely to cheat if their friends and family members have cheated. And you're kind of like, why in the world? But I think it's the kind of becomes more of a norm or something that's accepted. That doesn't mean you're doomed if that's happened in your family, but just watch out for it. Um, when a woman has an affair, it's more often the result of long-term marital dis dissatisfaction and the marriage is harder to repair. I know there's a man and a woman involved in most every affair that we're talking about, but I think it's if, if, if that situation that you're dealing with is the woman that sort of started it and get mixed up in semantics there, can't we? Um, Say that again. <laughs> when a woman has an affair, and obviously they're both having that, but if you're, you're dealing with the woman who, I guess, initiated, maybe is the word that's implied there, it's more often the result of long-term marital dissatisfaction rather than curiosity, excitement-seeking, uh, availability, you know, 
um, all these other other things that come out as possible reasons and the marriage is harder to repair I think is what she's saying Bill does that make sense now by the way you and Kathy aren't sitting together is that a is that a bad sign or okay uh, I promise that we didn't sit by her <laughs> <laughs> you're make you're making the point for me okay um, one more. more than 90% of all married individuals believe that monogamy is important, but almost half of them admit to have having had affairs. So it's not, it's not the, the um, commitment and the whole setup. It's just we, we are human. I will say probably my view of, mar- of um, can people get past infidelity has changed over the years especially working as a marital therapist and family life minister before that with doing, doing very similar stuff. Uh, I, th- I think the conversation with Kim and I back, you know, 32-something years ago before we got married was, you know, if that happens, you're going to be dead, so just, you know, just get, you know, get used to that. If you have your, your one time there, I'll, I'll go out, you know, in the women's prison and feel, feel okay about it, I guess. I don't, I don't know that she's <laughs> sticking by that, but... Yeah, that was kind of it. it implied in there, you know, let's tell each other some of this stuff that we talked about. And we were just brand new newlyweds when we heard, heard Lynn's stuff. So it was pretty, pretty crucial. Um, trying to make sure I check with my outline. Anything makes, not make sense in all of that? Yes, sir. So your views change That'd probably help you, wouldn't it? <laughs> if I cleared that up, that adultery is just something you can't get past. You know, if, if somebody did cheat, then it's, you know, no way to salvage that marriage. Um, I do believe there is a way, yes. Thank you. Please tell me if I'm, because I've got the Wednesday night brain thing going. Do any of the rest of you have that? I guess if I'd taken off half day or something, that would have been wise, but I didn't. So, you know, full, full <coughs> schedule. Yeah, I, I see hope for that. If both people are willing to do that and do the this therapy that's needed and changes and Whatever it takes is the last thing on one of these lists I'm going to tell you, which might mean moving to another city, might mean changing jobs. You've got to be willing to do whatever's necessary to, uh, to um, recover from that. But, you know, I, I guess I grew up with pretty much the traditional view that that was the, that was the kiss of death, you know, for a marriage and just, just move on. And it's, I don't, I don't guess I see it that way anymore. Rampant infidelity, where there's no, no repentance and no changes, that may, that may be different than, I think, the, the usual thing we're going to talk about tonight. Let's go probably straight to this more important list. This is the one that kind of sticks with me. If you're inclined to write anything down or use your note little section on uh, your phone, this would be the one to write down because this is a crucial one, two, three, four, five, I think seven, eight, nine points, which are more points than you're supposed to have in a sermon, but this is not a sermon, so it's okay. <laughs> First one, identify your deepest emotional needs that you're trying to have fulfilled in marriage. I don't mean like, you know, I want a pony or I want to, you know, I want to, <laughs> you know, hope to be a, a train conductor someday or something. I don't mean that, but stuff that you're hoping to get out of marriage. Now, is it fair to put all of that inside the marriage basket. No. Y'all ever watched uh, Andy Stanley's uh, I Marriage or heard any of that stuff? That'd be a great series to look at as well. It's kind of everything we bring into the marriage, which is uh, um, these expectations. I know it's going to be like such and such. 
and your, your spouse has got no clue what's going on in your mind there because they can't read your mind and you, you're, you're acting like they should know that. So that's a good series. It's not really a book that you can read. I think it's more of a class series. There's a little workbook that goes with it and it's actually on YouTube as well if you just want to watch it on your own. So kind of identify what those are. I'm hoping for companionship. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll talk a few minutes at least every day, right? That seems to be kind of a norm. And when you're dating, you can't talk enough with each other, right? And then been married a few years and it's almost like, you know, well, I can pencil you in for, you know, 15 minutes, three days from now. How, how will that be? It's almost, almost that. And it doesn't make any sense. You know, the stuff you did to start your relationship together, you need to try to do as much of that as you can, obviously, along the way. Um, the second one, though, share all of these needs with your spouse as much as you can, which means you've got to identify them first, doesn't it? What is that? And, and have a have a out loud conversation about that. Not not ESP, right? They can't they can't pick that up. But here's here's stuff that I'm hoping to get from the marriage. And again, I'm stealing Lynn McMillan on most of these. I've got a good one or two that I added. I'll tell you which ones are mine because it's you know worked hard on that. Third one, never talk to a person of the opposite sex about your marriage problems. And if you haven't written anything else down, maybe write that one down. Let me put another couple of nevers there. Never, never, never talk to a person of the opposite sex about your marriage problems. What about a therapist? I'd still be careful. How about that? I don't know if Amy agrees with that or not. But, you know, you just got to be careful. We, we learn dual relationship stuff for a reason in professional ethics. So that's, and that's, the code's in there because therapists mess up. So if you get a bad vibe from a, a therapist, pretty easy to fire them and go on to somebody else. We're really a dime a dozen. They're, we're all over the place. So <laughs> there's somebody else to find. Yeah, I'm not talking about husband and wife sitting down and talking with somebody who's struggling. And I wish I could do that professionally. That'd be nice, you know, if Kim could just be in there with me all day. She cares nothing about being a therapist, so and she wouldn't sleep ever again the rest of her life, I promise, because it's one of those things where, you know, she's, she's nervous enough about her own job stuff, so she sure doesn't need to take on mine, so that's okay. But it'd be nice, you know, if you had some accountability like that. And we try to do other things if, if you're a professional, but if you're a lay person and volunteer trying to help folks, just be careful about that need to maybe hear more about that, I think is what you're saying. Is that, is that what you're saying? We fall into that because I think we're looking for an ally and there's probably some unmet stuff, some unconscious stuff going on in there. You know, if I say, well, you know, go talk to your, your guy friend if you're a guy or go talk to your girlfriends. Well, you know, I, I want, want to get the other gender's perspective. Ought to be some, some warning lights going off in your head. Um, so that, that is a crucial one. Don't talk to, them about, to a person of the opposite sex about your marriage problems. There's just a chemistry and a dynamic that goes on there that's just extremely dangerous. For one thing, because they come back like, well, baby, I would never, I'd never treat you like that, or I can't, can't believe he's doing that. I can't believe she's doing that. You're such a special person, you know, that you don't deserve that to happen. How does that feel if you're in a low point and somebody starts telling you that maybe not the baby part, but you know, the, the rest of that, how, how does that make you feel? 
not any way you've been feeling with spouse for a while, right? If you're in, in that condition. So I don't think people start out. It's not like David on the roof. We're not out like looking for this to happen, but the devil can work uh, inside our hearts with hearing these things that are going on. Fourth one, recognize and cease any private meetings with the opposite sex. Private meetings. Well, Keith, I've had, you've had lunch with this opposite sex coworker of mine, you know, for years and years and years. Are, are you saying that's wrong? I'm saying that's potentially wrong. I don't know. I don't know what's going on there because you don't know what's going on in their mind. You don't know, you know what's going on in yours in, a, in an offered <laughs> spot. And notice I said private. I'm not talking about, you know, groups of people at work and all that kind of stuff. But it just gets a little dangerous. And people have argued with me over the years about that one because they think they want a little bit too much to continue some of those meetings. Does that does that make sense? Um, So kind of recognize, first of all, if that's happening and then cease those. The one, two, three, four, fifth one. Tell your spouse of any potential temptations like Susie's coming on pretty strong. You know, at work, she's kind of hanging out at my desk longer than necessary or, uh, you know, Billy Bob. I hate to make up names on the spot here, but, you know, he's was that the Joe Godley name or who, who did he always? There was some example name he always had. Maybe it'd be Billy Bob. Does Joe go here now? Do y'all know Joe? Good guy. Um He's hanging around a little too long or paying too much attention or um, being a little bit too helpful with things. Let's see what happens if you're the spouse and your spouse has just told you about this person that they're a little concerned about. It's not a secret anymore, is it? They may drop by casually, you know, to bring you a nice lunch or something just to, you know, show that they're there. All of that's subtle but very important. For that to happen, kind of people to see, you, know, you probably ought to need to talk more about your spouse at work when, when you recognize something like that's going on. Um, and just telling your spouse, I'm pretty sure is going to solve any particular, particular future problems for you. Do you, you agree with that? Because if you're halfway paying attention, it'll be like, so tell me about Billy Bob. You know, has he been been hanging around more after we talked about it? You're just kind of making that a uh, more of a public thing. I had the privilege of um, teaching marriage in the family in Zambia a couple of times. which That's kind of a once in a lifetime sort of thing. I think they, they taught me as much about family life from their standpoint as, as I taught them. And we're trying to look more biblically. But I, of course, since I use this lesson everywhere, use that one and mention that one. And there was a small riot that kind of started out in the back of the room. There's about 70 or 80 ministry students, which is not like, you know, Harding grad. This was like guys who were farmers and merchants and stuff that were just learning how to do that and would probably never receive a, a pay from the church. It wasn't that. They just wanted to, you know, be the best servants they could be. So I finally was like, okay, what I say, why are y'all, why are y'all going crazy back there? And they said, well, Keith, we think if we told our wives that, you know, this other woman was uh, flirting with us, she would go out, you know, and beat her up or maybe kill her, you know, this, this could, this could be, this could be bad for the church, you know, if we're uh, kind of having, having people killed along the way. So I was like, 
well, let's make sure she's safe, but apparently mission accomplished as far as you being tempted anymore, right? Because, you know, you're a little afraid of her as well. So there's, there's probably something to that. But it's just that idea of not making it secret anymore. The, the next one, pray about these potential temptations. Prayer takes the power out of it. And, and all of this kind of assumes that you're being honest enough to say, okay, this person is, I find attractive and they're, they're, they seem to be reciprocating in some way, which is, you know, is an ego boost just in itself, right? So you're trying to take the, the power out of that. Um, by the way, if you're attracted to somebody else, does that mean you're married to the wrong person? It's another one of those myths that's out there, right? I think that's from some movie, um, Anne Hayes or something. I was like reading, reading the synopsis of it where she... Uh, it's on a desert island with Harrison Ford for the week or something. Is that, you remember that movie? Which that happens all the time, right? You know, we're always marooned with movie stars. But um, then she was questioning, you know, am I engaged or married to the right person? Because I find this other person attractive. That just means you're, you're not blind and you're still living, right? If you find, <laughs> find someone else attractive, you just don't act on that. Uh, that's, that's the thing. God, especially us guys, we are very, very visually Oriented, so it's it's a matter of understanding that Jesus said, "Don't lust." So I'm I'm not questioning that, but you know, if you're if you're human, you're going to notice people people are getting slapped uh, in the room. Where you're going to notice, like you know, that you're you're attracted to a person of the opposite sex. Boy, time's getting away. Um, anything on those three? The private meetings, telling your spouse about potential temptations, and praying. That really is the, the more important stuff I wanted to say. I'm going to keep talking, but that's the more important parts. Hard to do, though, right? You know, just I hope you're taking like a little mental checklist right now. You know, are, are, there, are there private meetings that I'm um, a part of that maybe are just routine and I'm not even thinking about? Yeah, maybe that... Breakfast every Tuesday is not such a good idea, you know, with this with this opposite sex coworker. I'm not trying to spoil all your all your business leads and that kind of stuff. Just be just be careful about it. Um, <laughs> something else I was reading, kind of related to that. If you have a uh, if you have a potential conflict like that, an ongoing meeting or a um, trip, especially, is even worse, right? If there's some kind of kind of traveling involved. I would say just don't do that if there's any way humanly to get out of that. But I noticed the copyright on this thing was like 1989, which doesn't seem that long ago to me because I'm old, but it, it, is, it is pretty long. But the author said, you know, if you have to do that, we'll make it a threesome. I don't, don't think he meant that. But, you know, as far as having, having somebody else along, that, that term has kind of changed meaning, hasn't it, the last few years here. Sorry about that. Next one, um, be very careful of physical touch. I'm pretty high, pretty sure Highland is a huggy church, just like Oliver Creek is, right? Is that and, and I'm not talking about that, but you kind of know because I've had had females tell me when they're even like the church hug is a little out of out of hand there for something going on that shouldn't be. Just be careful about that, and you know, do you only hug the attractive people and don't hug the ugly ones, or do you not, you know, not 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 hug the you know the younger folks and not the older ones or something. Just, just be careful kind of what your, what your standards are there, right? Apologies to all the ugly people. Um, guard what goes in your mind is another one. 
2 Corinthians 10.5, if you want to add a scripture to that as far as what are you thinking about? Obviously, y'all have had some good teaching here on porn and watching what goes into your mind. And this, this whole topic kind of echoes that as well. The last thing, though, do whatever is necessary to keep from falling into this. We will read this one, Matthew 5.29, that we kind of alluded to from the Sermon on the Mount. We know this one. We kind of struggle with it a lot. Let's just read the whole section, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's hyperbole here, I hope, you know, as far as this. But Jesus is saying, don't take it lightly, right? Whatever you've got to do to stop lusting, to stop having these thoughts, if you've got to quit a job, quit it. If you've got to move, move away. Whatever you've got to do to control these thoughts that are going on in your, in your head. Um, did it get hot in here or is it just because I'm talking about sexuality? Okay, just, just making sure. Just, just making sure. I tend to get overheated talking anyway. Um, one little quiz. What time do we finish, Bill? Uh, when you stop. When I stop. So in our next hour, we'll be talking about... Uh, we have 17 minutes and some mothers will probably get up and leave and that's the signal. Okay. Is it over at 8? Something like that. Something like that. Okay. I, sound, sounds like our church. Eight, eight-ish, you know, there, thereabouts. Uh, here's a quiz from Shirley Glass. Yes or no, don't answer out loud. Do you confine more to your friend than to your partner about how your day went? I think I said confine. Confide. <laughs> do you confide more to your friend? Secondly, do you discuss negative feelings or intimate details about your marriage with your friend but not with your partner? And y'all would never fall into that because you're already following my earlier rule about never do that, right? But we're human. Thirdly, are you open with your partner about the extent of your involvement with your friend? Probably not. They may not even know of your friend's existence, right? And uh, remember, the book is called Not Just Friends. So she's trying to warn us not to get into that at all. Um, fourthly, this gets even worse. Do you feel, would you feel comfortable if your partner heard your conversation with your friends? Would that be okay? And then fifth, would you feel comfortable if your partner saw a videotape of your meetings? You know, how, how friendly, how chummy does it look? Um, are you aware of sexual tensions in this friendship? And, you know, that sounds kind of unbelievable at one level, but I, I hear this way too often, you know, that these texting relationships, it's all this sexual stuff that, you know, I'd like to do to the other person kind of stuff that's mentioned there. And they may say, well, we never met up, but that's, you know, that's still a problem, isn't it? If those things are being discussed. Um, do you and your friend touch differently when you're alone than in front of others? And then the big one, are you in love with your friend? Um, trying, to, trying to be a little bit alarmist, I'll, I'll admit to that because remember I hate this and I don't want to have to keep doing this. It'd be much better 
to avoid some of this than to, even though I feel like you can recover from it, but it's, it is grueling, hard, hard work. I will say it just, there's almost a progression of what happens in there that we don't have time to, to get into, but it, it is not anything you want to take part in if you can at all avoid that. And a lot of spouses just are not even going to get to that point because it's, it's one of their non-negotiables. This is just not, not something I can handle. And, you know, Matthew 19 seems to give that, give that allowance. So it's, you know, it doesn't say you have to do that, but it does say you can do that and you're allowed to do that. I've really enjoyed um, presenting to you and having uh, Jermaine with us. He was here last week as well, but he had a little bit he wanted to share on this topic. So we'll give him the last few minutes. Keith said I wanted to share some things. That wasn't exactly true. (laughs) He asked me. No. Um, So I'm up here uh, willingly, um, but it's not comfortable for me. This is my first time actually sharing this information with um, someone other than my wife or Keith or close friend. Um, But um, I was actually, it sounds weird even saying it, but I was a victim of infidelity, not by this lovely woman, but I was married uh, prior to her and um, there was infidelity uh, in that marriage. So I guess I'm here to talk about what it feels like on, on the other side of the infidelity, um, just in case some of you are not aware. Um, so mentally, I, I think the first question you ask is, you know, what is the truth? Like, what's really going on? Because at some point, there's some deceptive behavior going on. And you're questioning, okay, is this what I think it is? Or is my mind playing tricks on me? Am I reading too much into what I'm seeing or what I'm hearing or what I'm witnessing? Or is it really it? And then when you go to ask, ask the other person, um, they're, they, they're most likely going to deny it and dismiss it. But then it just doesn't go away. It stays with you and it lingers. And then once you find out like that it's happening it gets worse so you don't think it it can get worse after you start speculating whether or not it's happening but once you know it's happening once you know it happened it's real there's no there's no giving that truth back and it plays with you it continues to plague you um you wonder okay why what was the what was the reason um did i what did i do or what did i not do or um, then you go into, well, how could you do this? I, I thought what we had was special. I thought what we had was real. I thought what we had was unique. Um, and then, depending on how far you want to go with that, um, you start to want details. Like, how did it happen? Like, what was the progression of leading up to? And then what, hap- what happened afterwards? And then you just, um, it just, it gets harder from there. Um, there's a lot of emotions that go on. Um, it's like um, grief, almost. There's some elements of grief in there. There's some anger. There's some depression. There's some denial. Like, no, this can't be real. No, they didn't do that. Not my, not my spouse. Um, then there's mistrust. Like, seemingly irreparable mistrust. Like, there's nothing this person can do that's wrong. There's nothing this person can do 
that can make me believe or trust what they say or what they do. There's nothing you can do. Don't ever, don't ever say the words, oh, you can trust me. It's okay. I won't hurt you. I won't ever do that again. Don't, don't, <laughs> nothing that they say ever feels right. And there's no way I want to work to repair the mistrust because I didn't do anything wrong. At least that's how you feel on the inside of the drug. So, um, what else? There's a lot of emotional stuff. Oh, shame. Feelings of inadequacy. I'm not enough. I wasn't enough. Um, then there's the public shame. Especially if you have a, a church family. It's difficult to go, just be in the building or be in the presence of those you, who you're supposed to draw strength from or draw encouragement from. It's very difficult to even just be in their presence, um, especially if, you lead, if you're a leader in any capacity, whether it's a small group, you're in a Bible class, um, you have to lead in a worship assembly, anything. It, it just feels like all eyes are on you. People are laughing or talking about you. People are um, questioning your, your credibility as a spiritual leader. It just, you don't even want to, you don't even want to be there. Um, friends and family, of course, it's difficult to go to family functions. It's difficult just to participate in life, period. Anything outside of work or going home, you don't really want to do because you're so um, embarrassed just to be there. Um, and then there's guilt. Should I stay or should I leave? Um, if I stay, I feel like a fool. And if I leave, I feel like the bad guy. Because ultimately, there's somebody that's going to say, well, you should give them another chance. Or there's that other person that says, no, you should leave them. That's what I would do. But they're not in your situation. So there's no way they could really speak to how you feel or what you should actually do. Um, then there's physical hurt. How much time I got? Okay. Physical hurt. Once you find out, once that truth drop bomb is dropped on you, there's this visceral pain. Like if it's when I when I heard it, I felt it right in here. Like it physically hurt right here. And I don't know what's right here. I'm not I'm not a doctor. I don't know what's right here, but I couldn't stand up, I couldn't sit down, nothing I did left me in a comfortable state. I I couldn't do I left work. Now, if you know me, it takes a lot for me to not be at work. I think Keith is learning this about me. I work a lot. Um, I work at day, at, at night, whatever I'm not asleep um, and I'm not watching TV or have my hand in a bowl of popcorn, I'm working. So there you go, popcorn. So um, I, I went to work that day, but on my way to work, I felt sick. I was driving too fast, or I was in the middle of the road where I shouldn't have been, just stopped because my brain was on what I just found out. I went to work. Um, I got there about 7.30. At about 9 o'clock, I had to go home sick because I, I, this part of my body right here just wouldn't allow me to be comfortable. I couldn't think. Um, so, and then there's all this irrational behavior. So behavior that doesn't make sense, things you wouldn't typically do. For instance, um, one morning she told me she was going to, I woke up to a note in the bed that said, I'm going to, I went to, I'm going to Kroger, or I went to Kroger, I'll be back soon. 
So this is like seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. So I wake up to this note like, what? She doesn't cook, why would she go to Kroger? <laughs> so I'm thinking in my mind, she's gonna meet up with this guy and I know where she walks because the park down the street is very close to our house. So she's probably there. So at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning, I get up and I go to this park to look for her. She's not there. I go to the Kroger where I, where that's closest to our house that we normally go to and I drive the parking lot. She's not there. I don't see the car. So I drive around for about an hour and I finally go back home at 8.30 after I couldn't find her and I'm mad. She's there with groceries, cooking. Exactly what she said she was doing. And I questioned her about it. I said, I went to the store, I went to Kroger and I checked the parking lot to see if you were there. She goes, oh, I went to that Kroger, but they didn't have all the ingredients that I needed, so I went to a different store. Irrational behavior, things like that. Um, I did a lot of stupid things looking back, thinking under normal circumstances, I wouldn't do those things. But because of what I found out, I did what I would call stupid things. Um, then spiritually. You know, you ask God questions, why me? Why does this have to happen to me? What's the point of this? What, what is the point of, why am I going through this? Um, this shouldn't happen to me. You know, I'm a, I'm a good Christian. You know, that, that thing we tell it. You know, I'm, I'm a good Christian man, you know. I do, what, I, do what I'm, I do what I'm supposed to do. I go to church. I'm very active. I express my faith. What, what is, what's going on? Um, and then you have that struggle where I want to be happy with the person I'm with. And I should want to work this out because spiritually, God doesn't like divorce. That's what I've been told anyway. That's what I read. So no, I, I shouldn't want to divorce her. But if I stay with her, I'm not happy. Um, so is that the point? Is the point of it for me to not be happy but still remain, still remain married? So that was a lot of things that I had to kind of deal with and struggle with. How much time I got? Okay, I got three minutes. There's a whole other portion of this. Of course, I came out um, okay. I wouldn't say unscathed. But eventually, um, long story, a little bit longer, um, I forgave her. And then three months later, I filed for divorce. Um, there was a child involved. Um, for about a year, I walked around thinking this child was mine. And um, I did a lot of things that a father would do that, you know, I couldn't see him because she wasn't there. She wouldn't let me see him. And I was doing whatever I thought I could do, you know, to contribute to the child's well-being. Um, turns out a year later, a week after his first birthday, I found out he's, he's not mine. So there's all the emotions dealing with that. Um, thinking that you're a parent, you know, getting that emotional attachment, establishing the emotional attachment, and then having to sever that. There were a lot of other things that happened in that marriage, believe it or not. <laughs> a 
So, but that's kind of the gist of what it feels like to be on the other side, you know, of fidelity. It feels even odd saying I'm a victim of infidelity, but when I put it into words, that's what it sounds like. But I, I don't know if I really feel comfortable claiming the whole victim role. But the victim is not my identity. My identity is in Christ. So.